0: Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece. Episode 70, The Goddess of Seduction. Today's episode is brought to you by our new January Patreon supporters, Matt Paraskevopoulos, Abel K., and Sophie Menge. Once again, I do apologize if I didn't pronounce those correctly, but I do thank you for your donations and support of the podcast. If you too would like to support the History of Ancient Greece, you can become a monthly Patreon supporter at www.patreon.com backslash thehistoryofancientgreecepodcast.com or a one-time donor at www.paypal.me backslash ryanstitt. Links to the various sites are in the show notes. And now, let us turn our attention back to the Ancient Greeks. Aphrodite was the goddess of beauty, love, sexual pleasure, and procreation. She is seen as being present in the sexual act itself. In fact, the term Aphrodisiazine means simply to make love, while Eros, the word for physical love or desire, is also the name of a god who is Aphrodite's companion from the moment of her birth. But it would be a mistake to regard the goddess as being only a straightforward incarnation of the erotic impulse. Though sex is her primary concern, the myths surrounding her reveal that her powers extend well beyond the realm of physical relations. In particular, the view of Aphrodite as a vital cosmic force emerges in a poem entitled On Nature, written by the 5th century BC philosopher Empedocles. In this account of the physical works of the universe, Empedocles outlines a system in which the four elements— earth, water, air, and fire, are mingled together by a controlling force called eros, or love, so as to form the visible objects of our world. Quote, Love is in their midst, equal in length and breadth. Gaze on her with your mind, and do not sit with dazzled eyes, for she is recognized as being inborn in mortal limbs. Through her they think kind thoughts and perform the deeds of friendship, calling her joy by name, in Aphrodite. End quote. There were multiple traditions regarding Aphrodite's birth. According to Homer, she was the daughter of Zeus and an Oceanid named Dione. Hesiod, in his Theogony, though, has her being older than Zeus, making her his aunt actually, as she was born from the severed genitals of Oranos, the sky god whom Cronus had deposed. When his genitals fell into the sea, Aphrodite sprang from his seed and arose from the sea foam at Cythera, a small island on the southeastern tip of the Peloponnese. She took the figure of a woman, and since she rose from the sea foam or Aphros, she was named Aphrodite, or the goddess from the seafoam, at least according to Hesiod. From there, the west winds carried her atop a seashell, eastwards off to the island of Cyprus, where she was cared for by the horai, or the seasons. They dressed her in exotic clothing and taught her seductive ways. As a result, she became the glamorous goddess of sensual love and allurement. Because she was born on Cythera and reared on Cyprus, she retains two epithets, Cytheria and Cyprogenia, or the Lady of Cyprus. She was also given the name Anadiomene, because she arose from the waves. Aphrodite appears in art with certain recognizable features. She often wears elaborate and colorful eastern-style clothing. In her hands, she sometimes holds a mirror, in which she vainly admires her own beauty. She is often seen with her favorite birds, either sparrows or doves, because they are known for their affectionate ways. She is attended by one or more erotes, eros or cupid, who according to some, symbolize the primal moisture that is an essential ingredient of all procreation. There will be more on him shortly. She also has as companions himeros, or desire, and the keratai, or the graces. At times, Aphrodite is depicted naked in an effort to emphasize her voluptuousness. Her beauty was unsurpassed, but her power knows no bounds, neither in the heavens nor the earth, and ignores all propriety. Her only concern is to strike passion into the hearts of gods, men and animals alike, regardless of the cost to the parties concerned. In the Homeric hymn Aphrodite, she is honored as the irresistible sexual urge that operates on every level of creation. She quotes, "...stirs sweet longing in gods and subdues the races of mortal men." as well as the birds that swoop from the sky, and all the beasts that are nurtured in their multitudes on both sea and land." The poets call her Golden Aphrodite, and attribute to her the power to stir up sweet passion in both gods and mortals. The magical girdle that she wore was said to inspire love in human hearts, probably because by its very positioning, it absorbed the warmth of her sexuality. Aside from the three virgin goddesses, Athena, Artemis, and Hestia, Nobody, not even Zeus himself, could resist or elude any of her desires, and this is why everyone honored and respected her, being aware of the fact that she could become an avenger for those despising her or acting against her wishes. Hesiod writes that her sphere of influence included, quote, fond murmurings of girls, smiles, tricks, sweet delight, friendliness, and charm, end quote. In many of her myths, she is portrayed as vain. Ill tempered and easily offended, and numerous fascinating and scandalous stories surround Aphrodite. Her exploits, as one might expect, are always erotic in nature, and she is unique in Greek myth as the one Olympian goddess who is sexually promiscuous and adulterous with both gods and mortals. Homer in Book 8 of the Odyssey tells how she carried on a nighttime affair with Ares while her husband, Hephaestus, was away at his forge at work. Hephaestus had won his bride as terms for the release of his mother, Hera, from the trap that he had set for her, as we discussed in episode 67. Another version had it that because of her immense beauty, Zeus feared that the other gods would become violent with each other in their rivalry to possess her, so he forced her to marry the lame god Hephaestus. Regardless, he was overjoyed to be married to her and so he forged her beautiful jewelry, including the magical girdle which we just mentioned. It accentuated her breasts and made her even more irresistible, but Aphrodite held her husband in such disdain, and much preferred the handsome and impulsive god of war, Ares. To conduct the affair in secrecy, the two had employed a sentry named Electrion, whose name is the Greek word for rooster, and who was supposed to warn them when the day was breaking. One morning, though, Electrion fell into a deep slumber and failed to sound the warning. The sun god Helios, who sees everything beneath him, thus was able to see the two in each other's embrace, and immediately told what he had seen to Hephaestus. The blacksmith god then put into place a trap for the couple for the following evening. It was a kind of invisible net that ensnared Aphrodite and Ares at the moment that they laid in bed together. And so the next morning, Hephaestus called the other gods to come see his wife and Ares in this compromising position, and to witness his wife's infidelity. The Olympian gods laughed heartily, and Hermes exclaimed to Apollo that he wished that he could get caught in such a trap. Poseidon had sympathy for Ares, though, and agreed to pay Hephaestus for his release. A humiliated Aphrodite returned to Cyprus, where she was attended by the Graces. Before Ares returned to warfare, though, he punished Electrion by turning him into a rooster, which never forgets to announce the arrival of the sun in the morning by its crowing. Still, though, they must have carried on their affair, because from her mating with Ares, Aphrodite eventually bore Harmonia, or Harmony, and Eros, or Love, as well as the twins Deimos, or Terror, and Phobos, or Fear, who accompany their father on his chariot into battle. Always attending her, along with the Graces and the Horai, the little winged god Eros targeted his arrows mercilessly, causing happiness and joy, but also pain, to both the mortals and immortals. Such was the character of Aphrodite, though, always passionate, always indiscreet. Still, the powers that Aphrodite embodied are an omnipresent component of our existence. Many of her myths thus illustrate the complexity of love, how it brings beauty into our lives, but also how it causes confusion and distress. That's because love is indiscriminate. Touching gods and humans alike, it comes unexpectedly and leaves as quickly as it came. Its power knows no limits." According to Herodotus, the oldest cults of Aphrodite in Greece were established by Phoenician settlers. Although a lot of what Herodotus had to say about the Phoenicians can't be trusted, this claim does seem to have some merit. Since Homer and Hesiod give her clear connections with Cyprus, and since the cult of the goddess from Cyprus cannot be firmly traced to linear B tablets, most scholars think that she was a relatively late addition to the Greek pantheon, with her origins in the Near East. Although it's possible that she started as a local Cyprian love goddess, it's most likely that the cult of Aphrodite was imported from, or at least influenced by, the cult of Astarte in Phoenicia, when Cyprus was colonized by the Phoenicians in the 9th century BC. Astarte, in turn, seems to be derived from the cult of the Babylonian goddess Ishtar, who was largely derived from the cult of the Sumerian goddess Inanna. This significant influence of Near Eastern culture on early Greek religion in general, and on the cult of Aphrodite in particular, is widely recognized as dating to the Orientalizing period during the 8th century BC, when archaic Greece found itself trading with the peoples on the fringes of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Since the Phoenicians and the Greeks both came into contact in Cyprus and Kithara, which were stopping places for trade between the two, it's believed that this is where the influence of the cult originated, and that the myth explains her connections to those two places, and preserves traces of the migration of her cult from the Near East to Greece. A persistent minority, however, argue that her roots were Indo-European, not Semitic, and that she derived from the Vedic Dawn goddess, Ushash, Brought to Cyprus by the Mycenaeans, and that her absence from the Linear B tablets is just a coincidence, as we only have a small amount to go off of. A third view holds that her ancestor was a Bronze Age Cypriot goddess who incorporated both indigenous and Phoenician elements by the time the Greeks adopted her. Regardless, the former seems more likely to me, and the gradual spread of the goddess's cult may be partially recaptured in the stories of Homer and Hesiod of her birth from the sea and her journey across the waters. During the 13th century BC, long-standing trade between the Mycenaean Greeks and the Cypriots culminated in the Greeks colonizing several sites on Cyprus, including Pathos. At about the same time, a monumental sanctuary was constructed in the local style, with an open court and a covered colonnade. This sanctuary would endure for more than a thousand years, and would become the best-known cult site of Aphrodite. Here, according to Homer's Odyssey and Hesiod's Theogony, was the goddess's home, the spot where she was born from the sea, and where the smoke of fragrant incense arose from her altar. Not surprisingly, then, given the multicultural nature of the site, the ancient sources do not agree on whether the origins of the sanctuary were Greek, Cypriot, or Phoenician. One of the legends says that its founder was Agapenor, a king of Arcadia returning from the Trojan War. Archaeological and linguistic evidence of close contacts between Arcadian and Cypriot Greeks in this period suggests that this story contains at least a grain of truth, but a competing version holds that the sanctuary was founded by Kinross, an indigenous king whose descendants became the historical kings of Pathos and priests of Aphrodite. For his part, Herodotus says that the Cypriots borrowed the cult of Aphrodite or Aenea, that is Astarte, from Ashkelon in the Levant. In spite of the fame of Pathos, few details of its early cult are known. Inscriptions show that Aphrodite had the Mycenaean title Wanassa, or the Lady, until the end of the Classical period, and it is clear that her cult was closely associated with kingship on the Near Eastern model. The older structures in the sanctuary were mostly obliterated by the later Roman temple, and furthermore, only sources for the ritual life there are from the Roman period. According to the Roman historian Tacitus, the Paphians practiced divination from the entrails of sacrificed animals, but the blood was not allowed to touch the altar, which had to remain pure. This is consistent with the early accounts of incense as a key offering. Tacitus also describes the strange image of the goddess in the shape of a large canonical stone. Interestingly enough, a dark grayish-green stone of matching shape, that is slightly over a meter high, was recovered in the excavations at the site. Other sources, though, emphasize the importance of flowers and fragrant botanicals in our cultic worship at Paphos. The use of perfumed oil, mentioned as part of Aphrodite's Paphian shrine in the Homeric hymn Aphrodite, has Mycenaean precedents, too. Nearby was the Hirokepia, or sacred garden, perhaps the source for the rose garlands that filled the sanctuary. An important feature of the early cult here, which was not mentioned in the literary sources, is the relationship between the sanctuary and the industry of bronze metallurgy. Copper slag was found in the sanctuary itself and close by, a pattern that is repeated at other Cypriot cult sites from the late Bronze Age, where the goddess was worshipped in conjunction with a male deity. This patronage of the island's main export product by a divine pair throws new light on the mythic, but not cultic, association of Aphrodite with the smith god Hephaestus. There were numerous Cypriot sanctuaries of the goddess, but the one at Amathus, where the population was of indigenous and Phoenician stock, was noted for its unusual, bigendered deity. Here, the image of the goddess wore female garb, but was bearded and held a scepter. The locals called this deity Aphroditos, a masculine form of the name that was also known to be used in 5th century BC Athens. The androgyny of Aphrodite at Amathus again points to the Near East, as Phoenician Astarte is likewise known to have had a male aspect, but it is also compatible with Greek ideas of Aphrodite as the goddess born of Orinos' genitals, who governed male sexuality. Moving westward, the Greeks themselves thought that the oldest cultic place of Aphrodite in their lands was the island of Kythera, where an ancient sanctuary of Aphrodite or Aenea, or of the heavens, was attributed to Phoenician founders by Herodotus and others. Although archaeology provides no support for the hypothesis of Phoenician influence on the island, the sanctuary itself remains unexcavated, and the murex shells exploited by the Phoenicians for purple dye were known to be locally abundant. Certainly, this cult was well established by the time of Hesiod, who mentions Aphrodite's brief stay there, before her emergence from the sea at Cyprus. The remains of a 5th century BC Doric temple survive on the island, and the cult statue was an armed Aphrodite who recalled the warlike goddesses, Ishtar and Astarte. The goddess probably made her way to mainland Greece during the 10th and 9th centuries BC from three locations, Cyprus, Cathera, and Crete. Excavations have revealed that the Cretan sanctuaries are among the oldest, after those of Cyprus. At cato the archaic sanctuary devoted to Hermes and Aphrodite had a history of continuous use, stretching back to the Minoan period, though the Minoan predecessors of the pair must have had different names. At Olus, there was a geometric temple of Ares and Aphrodite. Ares is not attested at the site until the double temple of the Roman period, but in other parts of Crete, the pair was worshipped from an earlier date. In fact, all over the Greek world, Aphrodite is regularly found with a cult partner, usually Ares or Hermes, and this appears to be an archaic feature of her worship rather than a later development. Naturally then, since they were important disseminators of her cult, Aphrodite sanctuaries were regularly located at port cities along the major trade routes used by Greek and Phoenician merchants. An anecdote quoted by Athenaeus illustrates this point. Herostratus, a merchant plying the waters between Cyprus and the Greek trading emporium of Nocritus in Egypt, purchased a small statue of Aphrodite at Paphos and then continued south. When a ship was struck by a terrible storm, Everyone aboard prayed to the gods to save them. As a result, fresh myrtle sprouted around the statue, permeating the air with its sweet scent and soothing the seasick men as the skies cleared. The crew arrived safely at Nacritus, and Herostratus was moved to dedicate the statue at the sanctuary of Aphrodite there, and to distribute crowns of the miraculous myrtle to her worshippers. Herostratus is supposed to have lived in the archaic period, and excavations have shown that the temple in the sanctuary of Aphrodite was one of the oldest structures at Necrotus, founded around 600 BC by Greek traders. Several vases were dedicated there as well to Aphrodite pandemos, an appropriate choice for a colony composed of immigrant citizens from varied backgrounds. Aphrodite's relationship with the sea is also documented by her epithets Pontia and Thalassia, both meaning of the sea. Pelagia, or of the open sea, and Galanea, or of the calm sea. As a patroness of seamen, she offered them good voyages, and they were grateful to her as Limania, or of the harbor, and Euploia, or of good sailing, for reaching their destination safely. The sanctuary of Aphrodite Euploia at Canidos was famous for its cult statue by Praxiteles, the first classical sculptor to show the goddess Nude. Surrounded by fine gardens, the temple was constructed on a circular plan, so that visitors could enjoy the delights of the statue in the round. We will discuss Praxiteles and this statue in more detail in a future episode. In addition, as a crea or of the highest, she had temples situated upon cliffs near the coast, especially close to capes, so that she could, quote, forever watch the bright open sea in its infinity, end quote. As we mentioned, Aphrodite was also depicted in full armor, and thus was worshipped as Panapolos, or fully armed. Despite this, though, Homer portrays Aphrodite as a rather pathetic figure when it comes to warfare, when her son Aeneas, more on him later, is injured on the battlefield at Troy by the Greek hero Diomedes. She rushes to defend him, but when Diomedes wounds her in the hand, she lets out a shriek and immediately drops her son. She then fled to the safety of Mount Olympus, where she is taunted by the warrior goddess Athena, and Zeus then takes her aside and advises her to leave warfare to the others, and to content herself with the lovely secrets of marriage. This was because although Aphrodite was associated with warfare, it was for very different reasons than Ares or Athena. She was associated with a love that causes wars, the most famous of which involved the judgment of Paris, Helen, and the Trojan War. On the Spartan Acropolis, we found the foundations of a temple of Aphrodite Areia or of Ares that contained at least two archaic cult statues. Based on inscribed pot shards from the area, one of these was probably Aphrodite Basilis or of the Queen. In the 7th century BC, Spartan colonists of Taras and Ceterion in Italy chose to carry this cult to their new home. Teros built a similar temple for the goddess on their Acropolis, and at neighboring Satyrion, worshippers deposited huge numbers of terracotta figurines and pots dating from the seventh to the third centuries BC, including one inscribed with the cultic title Basilis. The choice of Aphrodite as a patroness may be connected with the legend that the settlers were illegitimate sons of Spartan women, as we mentioned in episode twenty two. A second Spartan temple of Aphrodite on the Acropolis was unusual in that it had two stories, each containing its own cult statue. The lower level housed Aphrodite and Oplius, or the armed, an archaic cult that may have been copied when the Spartans took over Cathera. The upper room contained an unusual cedar statue called Morpho, or the beautiful one. Here, the goddess, presumably Aphrodite, was shown enthroned, veiled, and wearing fetters on her feet. She belongs to a category of cult statues deemed to be so powerful and dangerous that they required binding and restraint. The veil too fits this interpretation, for such images were often hidden from view. At Paphos, Cathera, Corinth, Athens, and many other places, Aphrodite was known as Urania, or heavenly. For the Greeks, This was the most widely disseminated of her titles, and it evoked the Hesiodic story of her birth, from the severed genitals of Uranus, or Father Sky. They also associated the title with Aphrodite's presumed eastern origins, perhaps because Ishtar Astarte was known as the Queen of the Heaven, and was likewise a daughter of the Sky God. And so Aphrodite's abode was the Heaven's. And Greek artists visualized the goddess being transported through the night sky, or descending from the heavens on a ladder, which was an Egyptian and Near Eastern symbol of travel between heaven and earth. For example, the biblical Jacob's Ladder became the colloquial name for a connection between the earth and heaven that the biblical patriarch Jacob dreams about during his flight from his brother Esau, as described in the book of Genesis. Much evidence for the cult of Urania comes from Athens, and its observance there was a tribute to the mythical king Aegeus. The goddess had a sanctuary in the Agora, near the Stoa Achille, but the statue attributed it to Phidias, and an altar excavated in the area was constructed around 500 BC. In the vicinity of this altar lay a fragmentary 5th century BC votive relief of Aphrodite descending a ladder and later reliefs of the goddess riding on a goat, her favorite sacrificial animal. The iconography of Aphrodite on a goat must have been popular with Greek women, as it was often used to decorate bronze mirrors and jewelry. We also find the goat and ladder motifs combined on votive reliefs outside of Athens, as well as on a silver medallion from a brothel in the Kerameikos that shows the goddess riding through a starry sky accompanied by Hermes and Eros. The Sanctuary of Aphrodite by the Ulysses River, situated in a suburban area of Athens known as the Gardens, has not been located and is known only from Pausanias' description. He mentions an image of Aphrodite or in the shape of a herm, or a squared off pillar topped by a head. The shape was not unusual in the cult of Aphrodite, though it is primarily associated with Hermes or Dionysus. It may have been a sign of Aphrodite's bisexual nature, for the other two gods portrayed in this way were highly phallic, or it may have been a reminder of the goddess's iconic image at Paphos. While the Herm stood in the courtyard, the temple itself contained the best known work of Phidias' pupil, Alchemenes, titled Aphrodite in the Gardens. Pausanias called this much admired statue one of the most noteworthy sights in Athens but unfortunately failed to describe its appearance, leaving modern scholars to speculate based on minimal clues. A prevailing theory holds that two other sanctuaries of Aphrodite in the area around Athens are duplicates of the one on the Ulysses River, those being the small sanctuaries at Daphne and on the northern slope of the Acropolis. Certainly, they are similar to one another, for both were bounded by stony hillsides with niches cut into the rock. Both linked the worship of Eros with that of Aphrodite, and both received votive offerings in the shape of male and female genitalia. These charming spots, which were surely filled with greenery in antiquity, correspond to the vase paintings of the Midian school of the late 5th century BC that show Aphrodite seated on a rock in a garden setting. Aphrodite's connection with vegetation at these shrines recalls the sacred gardens of near-eastern Astarte and Cypriot Aphrodite or in poetry and cultic worship, Aphrodite was associated with blooming gardens and all of the paraphernalia of female beauty, perfumed textiles, jewels, mirrors, and so forth. In particular, incense, dove sacrifices, and myrtle crowns were distinctive features of her worship. Above all, Aphrodite rules over sexual unions of every variety and is naturally associated with the private affairs of marriage and the conception of children. And so, she was typically honored at several smaller shrines found throughout a given city, rather than one major sanctuary, which indicates an important popular element in the development of her cult. Her sanctuaries often included a cult statue, which required housing, but only rarely were grandiose temples built for her. Similarly, few state festivals in her honor are attested, except in the case of Aphrodite Pandemos. though private activities such as vows and banquets were common particularly in connections with the securing of husbands or the safe completion of sea journeys. Phidias sculpted a statue of Aphrodite or Aenea for the Eleans, the sponsors of the Olympic Games. This work of ivory and gold showed Aphrodite standing with one foot, resting on a tortoise, an animal associated with women in Greek folklore because it was always confined to its home. In the sanctuary at Elis, Phidias's Aphrodite Oranea was juxtaposed with a bronze statue of the goddess riding on a ram by the 4th century BC sculptor Scopus. This image was called Aphrodite Pandemos, or of all the people, another widespread cultic title of the goddess. Plato in a symposium attempted to differentiate Oranea and Pandemos as two distinct goddesses. The former as the celestial deity of platonic love, which is a type of transcendent, spiritual love, and the latter as the goddess concerned with fleshly, non-spiritual pleasures. There is no evidence, though, to suggest that this distinction reflects cult practices or assumptions. orania is by no means aloof from fleshly pleasures, while Pandemos shares the iconography of the celestial goddess who travels through the sky. We will discuss Plato's theories on love and his symposium in more detail next episode. The epithet Pandemos had to do with Aphrodite's political function as a goddess who unites the citizens in harmony. An Athenian legend about Pandemos says that Theseus founded her worship with that of Pytho after he united all the people of Attica into one city. Pytho was a daughter of Hermes and Aphrodite, who we discussed in episode 67. She personified persuasion and seduction and accompanied her mother as one of her attendants, along with the Graces. Also, because of their role in seduction, Aphrodite and Pytho were sometimes conflated, with the name Pytho appearing either in conjunction with or as an epithet of Aphrodite's name. Equally indispensable in matters of love and politics, Aphrodite Pytho was an important concept for the emergent Athenian democracy. It is probable that the cult was established around 500 BC and helped to promote Sonousia or the fellowship of citizens. The cult of Pandemos was an exception to the rule that Aphrodite's worship tended to be less centralized and state-supervised than that of most other Olympian deities. At Erethrae in Ionia, an oracle solicited by the state toward the end of the 5th century BC advised that the citizens build a temple of Aphrodite Pandemos and supply it with a statue for the preservation of the people. We hear of Athenian tetradistae, or men who gathered to feast in honor of Aphrodite Pandemos on the 4th of every month, a day sacred to both Aphrodite and Hermes. Remnants of the sanctuary have been excavated on the southwestern slope of the Acropolis, including a small 4th century BC temple with sculpted doves. A later Hellenistic inscription from the site details preparations for her state-sponsored festival at Athens. The Aphrodisia took place annually in several Greek polis, but it was an especially magnificent festival at Athens and Cyprus. At Athens, the festival occurred during the month of Hecatombion, or late June and early July. What we know about the rituals of the Aphrodisia at Athens is consistent with Aphrodite's representation in iconography and text. For example, the first ritual of the festival would be to purify the temple with the blood from a dove, which we know is the sacred bird of Aphrodite. Afterwards, worshippers would carry sacred images of the goddess, as well as Pytho, in a procession to be washed. In Cyprus, participants who were initiated into the mysteries of Aphrodite were offered salt, a representation of Aphrodite's connection to the sea, and bread baked in the shape of a phallus. During the festival, it was not permitted to make bloody sacrifices, since the altar could not be polluted with the blood of the sacrificial victims, which were usually white male goats. This, of course, excludes the blood of the sacred dove, made at the beginning of the ritual to purify the altar, as we mentioned earlier. In addition to white male goats, worshippers typically offered fire, flowers, and incense as a sacrifice to Aphrodite Pandemos. A similar story to the legend of Theseus' establishment of the cult of Aphrodite Pandemos and Pytho can also be found at Thebes, where the city's Phoenician founder, Cadmus, is said to have married Harmonia, a daughter of Aphrodite and Ares. The Thebans believe that Harmonia, whose name implies the unity of the citizens, dedicated three ancient wooden statues of Aphrodite on their acropolis, called the Cadmia. These statues were named Orania, Pandemos, and Apostrophea, or the Averter of Evils. According to Xenophon, the three Theban civil and military officials, known as the Polomarkoi, always celebrated a festival of Aphrodite when their term of office was completed. Similar customs are attested for city officials in Megara, Ionia, and the Aegean Islands through dedicatory inscriptions, the earliest of which belongs to Chios in the 5th century BC. While the emphasis at Thebes is on Aphrodite's partnership with the war god Ares, many of these dedications also pair her with Hermes. In either case, the union of polar opposites, masculine and feminine, or war and love, expresses metaphorically the concepts of civic concord and harmonious order. And now, let us take a short break for a word from our sponsors. The History of Ancient Greece is powered by the CLNS Media Network, and today's episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring, posting your position to job sites, and waiting, and waiting for the right people to see it? ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive, so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Greece. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. Aphrodite represented not only innocent love, but also sexual attraction, to the point that she became associated with even prostitution. On the Acrocorinth, the high rocky citadel that sits above the polis of Corinth, Aphrodite was installed as a goddess of the city, probably under the rule of the Bacchi-eyed aristocrats in the 8th century BC. As in other early cults of Aphrodite, she was depicted with weapons and had the title Orania, signs of her Near Eastern influences. The Corinthian cult, though, differed from most other Greek cults of Aphrodite because the goddess was said to have owned slaves who worked as prostitutes. According to the traditional scholarly view, the practice of sacred prostitution originated as a fertility rite and is attested in relation to Ishtar and Asherah. For example, a class of women, known as Ishtaritam, is described in a Babylonian text alongside courtesans, whose favors are many, and prostitutes, whose husbands are legion, meaning the soldiers. On the other hand, this interpretation of certain Mesopotamian cultic functions has been vigorously criticized as a scholarly construct, overly relying on 19th century assumptions about fertility cult in the ancient Near East. While the vast textual evidence from cuneiform tablets reveals a perplexingly large variety of female cultic personnel, some of whom are regularly mentioned alongside prostitutes, or in contexts, that hint of sexuality, they offer no clear-cut example of a cultic prostitute, and it is likely that this conceptual category simply does not correspond to the more nuanced and complex roles of Mesopotamian women in relation to their goddesses. Not surprisingly, the practice of sacred prostitution at Corinth has also been called into question, since it was assumed to derive directly from the cult of Ishtar. In the Greek instance, though, the evidence is much more convincing, and it is important to keep in mind that prostitution for Aphrodite need not be an exact imitation of any Near Eastern model. It could have been based on Greek misunderstandings of the roles of female cultic personnel in the Near East, or it could even be an independent development. Athenaeus remarks that it was the practice of individuals to render hetairai, or courtesans, to Corinthian Aphrodite in payment of vows when their prayers were fulfilled. An example was Xenophon, not the historian, but a citizen of Corinth, who was an acclaimed athlete, and who vowed 100 girls to the goddess in return for a victory in the pentathlon at the Olympic Games in 464 BC. He commissioned Pindar to write a hymn celebrating his victory and his thanksgiving sacrifice. The hymn hasn't survived in its entirety, but fragments imply that the sacrifice was attended by the sacred girls of Aphrodite. Young women, very welcoming servants of Pytho in luxurious Corinth, you who burn the golden tears of pale incense, often you fly in your thoughts to Aphrodite or Aenea, the mother of loves. She gave to you girls without blame to pick the fruit of soft youth on beds of desire. With necessity, all is good. The Temple of Aphrodite at Corinth supposedly employed a significant number of sacred servants, or hierodules, as prostitutes that were dedicated to the goddess. The 2nd century AD author Strabo wrote, quote, The Temple of Aphrodite was so rich that it employed more than a thousand hetairai, whom both men and women had given to the goddess. Many people visited the town on account of them, and thus these hetairai contributed to the riches of the town, for the ship captains fervently spend their money there. The foundations of Aphrodite's temple are still visible in the Acropolis of Corinth. We do know that in both Greece and Rome, prostitutes looked to Aphrodite as their patron goddess, and as a thriving port and trade depot, Corinth was famous for its prostitutes. Sanctuaries were often expected to be self-supporting, and their income usually derived from estates belonging to the resident deity. In this case, the goddess profited from one of the main industries of Corinth, the sex trade through her ownership of slaves who worked as prostitutes. Most, if not all of these slaves, must have worked near the harbors, rather than on the Corinth itself, though. To modern ears, this arrangement sounds incompatible with the sacred, yet there is further evidence that the prostitutes of Corinth had a special relationship with Aphrodite. It was an ancient custom that whenever the city had great need, it recruited as many prostitutes as possible to participate in the supplication of the goddess. The most famous instance occurred in 480 BC, when, with the Persian invasion at hand, the Tyri of Corinth prayed to Aphrodite on behalf of the Greeks and the Corinthian soldiers. Still, there is no evidence that Aphrodite's prostitutes acted as priestesses of the goddess, or that consorting with them wasn't itself a religious act, so sacred prostitution is probably a misnomer for their role. We will talk more about prostitution in general next episode. A different form of sacred prostitution involving temporary service to Aphrodite is attributed to the people of Cyprus, Lydia, and Locroi Epiziphoroi by late authors, including Clearchus of Cyprus, who says that parents prostitute their freeborn daughters. The case for prostitution in connection with Aphrodite at Locroi is considerably less credible than that at Corinth, as the sources are not considered reliable and the practice described by Clearchus would have been shocking to standard Greek sensibilities. He may have had in mind the story that when the Locrians were under attack from the rival city of Region in the 5th century BC, they vowed to prostitute their virgins during the festival of Aphrodite if they were victorious. Huron of Syracuse intervened on their behalf, and the city was saved. It is unclear whether the promised offering of virgins actually took place. The gift of female sexual services and fulfillment of a vow evokes the customs of Corinth, and it is at least possible that the vow was made in a similar context, where prostitutes were a standard offering to Aphrodite. On this hypothesis, the exigencies of war drove the Locrians to vow not merely slaves, but their own daughters to the goddess, just as the Locrians of mainland Greece devoted citizen maidens to the temple service of Athena. The famous Ludovici throne, a ritual object of unknown function, which originally stood in a Locrian temple of Aphrodite, is carved with reliefs showing a nude courtesan playing the double flute on one side and a matron burning incense on the other, a reference to the vow, or perhaps to the different modes by which married women and non-sacred prostitutes served the goddess. There is no question that Aphrodite's worship at Locroi was anomalous in some ways. The oldest structure at Locroi is a dining complex near the seashore dating to the 7th century BC, not long after the initial founding of the colony, and later in the 6th century BC, a three-room temple was added. The U-shaped stoa, as it is known, enclosed 371 separate pits, each with the buried remains of one or more ritual banquets, including pottery inscribed with Aphrodite's name. The contents of the pits were laid down from the mid-6th to the 4th centuries BC. While dining facilities are not unusual in sanctuaries, this example is particularly early, and the careful deposition of the debris, with each pot and figurine deliberately broken, is unparalleled. Whatever the function of the ritual, the early date of the Stoa shows that Aphrodite's cult was of crucial importance to the colonists. At La Aphrodite's cult was closely intertwined with that of the most important goddess of Magna Graecia, Persephone, as we discussed in episode 61. The large collection of 5th century BC terracotta panaches from the sanctuary of Persephone contain a significant number illustrating mythic and cultic scenes involving Aphrodite, including her birth from the sea. Three panaches show Aphrodite with her cult partner Hermes while Eros, too, seems to have played a role in our worship there. In one, she stands in a chariot drawn by a winged boy and girl as Hermes steps up beside her. In another, she presents Hermes with a flower as Eros sits on her arm. A third shows cult statues of the pair standing in a temple while a young couple pours libations upon an altar decorated with a copulating satyr and deer. The general impression is that while Persephone's cult focused on prenuptial rites and the protection of young children, Aphrodite's cult had to do with women's sexual experience, including that of brides. And so Aphrodite is sometimes associated with weddings, but her involvement has to do specifically with the sexual component of marriage, not its social aspects. The Athenians not only worshipped Aphrodite as a goddess in the gardens, or the one who makes the ground fertile for herbs and flowers, but they also worshipped her on a festival called the Arephoria, which involved young girls between the ages of 7 and 11, and so may have been a kind of initiation rite, illustrating a citizen girl's entry into puberty and their childbearing period. We know from votive offerings from sanctuaries all over Greece that women viewed Aphrodite as the goddess responsible for stimulating their sexual powers. These votive offerings were often figurines of birds, fruit, or phalluses. On the road from Troezen to Hermione, Pausanias noted a sanctuary of Aphrodite nymphia, or bridal Aphrodite, which was connected with Theseus's abduction of the young Helen. And Hermione itself, both virgins and widows, who wished to go with a man— had to sacrifice to the goddess before marriage. The inclusion of widows shows that this was not a rite of passage, but an acknowledgement of Aphrodite's role in successful marriages. Similarly, widows at Naupactus went to Aphrodite's cave to pray for new husbands. The participation of women at varying stages of life is also evident in the venerable cult of Aphrodite at Sicyon, where the temple was served by a female warden called Neokoros, for whom it was no longer permitted to go with a man, and by a maiden priestess, consecrated for one year. Whereas the female warden had once been married, the priestess soon would be. The cult statue was a golden ivory image of the seated goddess, wearing a polos, which was a Near Eastern style crown, and holding a poppy in one hand, and fruit in the other. Access to the temple was restricted, so visitors gazed upon the statue and offered their prayers from the doorway. This cult is similar in nature to those of the old Achaean goddesses, such as Hera or Athena, and shows signs of the Near Eastern influences we see in other cities. Still, it is typically Aphroditean in its emphasis on fragrance. The sacrifices were burned on juniper wood with a local aromatic herb that had erotic associations. Now that we have discussed Aphrodite and cultic practice, we must circle back and discuss her mythic representation. The account of her birth, as transmitted by Hesiod, is particularly striking for its castration episode. The basic association implied between the act of love, symbolized by Aphrodite, and the act of castration points to a pervasive fear of female sexuality, a response which may have also helped to determine the paired but contrasting roles of Aphrodite and Athena in myth. Both goddesses are born from the male alone, but while Aphrodite emerges from Oronos' genitals, as a result of the latter's overthrow, Athena comes out of Zeus's head and helps to ensure his supremacy, and so the birth of a goddess renowned for her sexual activity is ascribed to a period when the female principle is still strong, while the consolidation of male control is marked by the advent of a goddess who espouses virginity. The same polarization could be said to mark the subsequent characters of the two deities. Athena is unfailingly loyal and helpful to our worshippers, but Aphrodite, on the other hand, is often seen as the female force that lays men low and inspires adulterous desires in others. The best example of this is the Trojan War, in which the goddess was a major figure and was the moral perpetrator in its initiation. She bribed the young Trojan prince Paris with love from the most beautiful woman in the world if he awarded her with the title of the most beautiful goddess in the famous judgment of Paris. And so he chose Aphrodite and then chose the gorgeous Helen as the most beautiful mortal woman. And so Aphrodite made her fall in love with him and follow him to Troy, which was the mythical catalyst for the ten-year war. Naturally, she sided with the Trojans in the war and opposed the Greeks, inventing excuses in order to punish them. Aphrodite saved her son Aeneas, more on him shortly, from Diomedes during a fight of theirs on the battlefield. Diomedes wounded her though, as we mentioned earlier, and so she made him pay dearly. She had his wife fall in love with Cometus, his close friend and comrade-in-arms. She also punished the two sisters, Clytemnestra and Helen, by making them engage in love affairs and thus ridicule their husbands, because their father, Tyndarius did not worship her. For the same reason, she caused the Lemnian women to emit a disgusting odor so that no man approached them and their population would thus die off. Their miasma ended when her husband, Hephaestus, wholeheartedly begged her, since he had a special connection with the Lemnians, as we discussed in episode 67. As a result, she relented and sent the Argonauts to Lemnos to pair off with them. She even took revenge on Eos, the goddess of dawn, causing her to always change lovers, because she once slept with Ares, who was the object of Aphrodite's affection, as we discussed earlier. Homer only obliquely gives Aphrodite blame for the deadly combat of the Trojan War in his poems, but by the 5th century BC, attitudes hardened towards her, and in tragic drama, the disruptive effects of Aphrodite's powers to shatter marriages are evoked much more devastatingly. Most searingly of all is the story of Apollytus, the son of Theseus. He was an innocent, virginal youngster who scorned Aphrodite's love and worshipped Artemis instead. In revenge, the spiteful goddess caused Phaedra, Hippolytus' stepmother, to fall madly in love with him. He rejected her sexual advances, though, and this led to Phaedra's suicide and the exile and horrible death of Hippolytus at the hands of his father Theseus, as we described in Euripides' play in episode 52. At both Athens and Troezen, which faced each other across the Saronic Gulf, Aphrodite's cult was closely linked with that of Hippolytus. The Athenian cult of Hippolytus was an offshoot of that at Troezen, the result of the popularization of Theseus as an Athenian hero. On the southern slope of the Acropolis, in the same area as the sanctuary of Aphrodite Pandemos, and perhaps identical to it, was the shrine of Aphrodite at Hippolytus, also known as the Apoliteon, where the hero received regular sacrifices at his tomb. At Troezen, on the other hand, Hippolytus was a local god whose sanctuary contained a shrine of the goddess, so that their relative status was inverted. The meaning of his name is not transparent, but it contains the root hip, meaning horse, suggesting a relationship with the god Poseidon, the patron deity of Troezen. In fact, both Poseidon and Aphrodite were responsible for his death, according to the myths. He was the principal deity in a large, important extramural sanctuary that included a number of interrelated cults. The debris from the site of Hippolytus' small temple at Troezen indicates activity as far back as the geometric period. Pausanias saw the temple with its ancient statue and reported that a priest was dedicated for life to Hippolytus' service. Before marriage, maidens offered a lock of hair at his sanctuary. The complex also included a stadium, overlooked by a temple of Aphrodite, Catascopia, or She Who Observes. Near this temple was a myrtle tree, sacred to the goddess, and the supposed tombs of Hippolytus and Phaedra. But back to the myth for a minute. Underlying this narrative is the belief, just like the story of Aphrodite's birth, that female sexuality can unhinge and destroy a man. But in the poem of the female Sappho, we see a totally different view of the goddess presented. For her, Aphrodite is a gentle and accommodating deity who descends to the earth not as a torrent of painful passion, but as one who can soothe and satisfy her worshippers, and so her presence is an occasion for rejoicing. And that above all else shows quite possibly the largest difference between the male tragic authors and the female Sappho in their depiction of Aphrodite. As a sexually active goddess, Aphrodite was also inevitably a mother, and we will discuss a few of her children here momentarily. However, it should be noted beforehand that this aspect of her livelihood receives very little recognition in myth. Although she is a mother, she is not seen as a mother goddess per se. Aphrodite is above all the patron of sex and desire, and it seems that for the Greeks, these do not mix with motherhood. The passion which the goddess inspires is associated, in many ways, with wildness, otherness, and a lack of control. To conjoin this passion with motherhood would be to accord to a female a frightening accumulation of power which would place her beyond the orbit of male control. And so Aphrodite is typically portrayed as being good at sex, but a failure as a mother. On the other hand, Demeter represents the reverse of this process— being held as the ultimate mother, and negligible when it comes to sexuality. Eros was the irresistible god of sexual love and longing. Homer does not mention Eros, but in the earliest sources that mention him, he is one of the primordial gods. Hesiod said that he was the fourth god to come into existence, after Chaos, Gaia, and Tartarus. The pre-Socratic philosopher Parmenides makes Eros the first of all gods to come into existence, and the Orphic and Eleusinian mysteries featured Eros as a child of Nyx, or Night. Some scholars conclude that Eros represents the actual act of sex, but that does not fit with the fact that in art and literature, he is often connected to flowers and gardens. The poet Alkman wrote that Eros plays like a boy, walking on the tips of flowers. An unknown poet wrote that Eros arises when the spring blossoms come. Other creation stories have many of the same components as the Greek and Roman versions, but substitute something else for Eros. In Genesis, there were no plants or life before mist and water, and so Eros is the personification of primal moisture. He is the dew on the flowers from the heavens. No generation can occur without this mist or wetness. In fact, the Greek word for dew can also mean tender, just as eros is portrayed as a tender young boy. This primal moisture also represents the actual sexual act, as semen and female wetness are required to procreate. The Greek root ros means a dew, and so eros literally means out of the dew. Furthermore, Hesiod says that when Hephaestus was running along chasing Athena, he got his dew on her, and she wiped it on the ground. In later myths, though, Eros was the son of Aphrodite and Ares, and one of the winged loved gods, called the Erotes. His Roman counterpart was Cupid. The duality between the primordial and the sexually conceived Eros accommodated the aforementioned philosophical concepts of heavenly and earthly love. In classical Greek art, Eros was portrayed as a slender youth, but from the Hellenistic period into the Roman times, he was increasingly portrayed as a chubby boy. He was wing it, because lovers are prone to change their minds and leave, and portrayed as boyish, because love is irrational. During this time, his iconography acquired the bow and arrow that represent his source of power. He also had the torch as a symbol, because when paired with the arrow, love both wounds and inflames the heart. Cupid carries two kinds of arrows— one with a sharp golden point, and the other with a blunt tip of lead. A person wounded by the golden arrow is filled with uncontrollable desire, but the one struck by the lead feels aversion and desires only to flee. The use of these arrows is described by the Roman poet Ovid in his Metamorphoses. When Apollo taunts Cupid as the lesser archer, Cupid shoots him with a golden arrow, but strikes the object of his desire, the nymph Daphne, with a lead one. Trapped by Apollo's unwanted advances, Daphne prays to her father, the river god Peneus, who turns her into a laurel tree, which henceforth became sacred to Apollo. It is the first of several unsuccessful tragic love affairs for Apollo, which we will discuss in more detail in a future episode. In myth, Cupid is a minor character who serves mostly to set the plot in motion. He is a main character only in the tale of Cupid and Psyche, when wounded by his own weapons, he experiences the ordeal of love. Although other extended stories are not told about him, his tradition is rich in poetic themes and visual scenarios, such as Love Conquers All, and the retaliatory punishment or torture of Cupid. The story of Cupid and Psyche appears in Greek art as early as the 4th century BC, but the most extended literary source of the tale is the 2nd century AD Latin novel known as The Golden Ass by Apuleius. It concerns the overcoming of obstacles to the love between Psyche, which means soul, or breath of life, and Cupid, and their ultimate union and marriage. The fame of Psyche's beauty threatens to eclipse that of Venus herself, and the love goddess sends Cupid to work her revenge. Cupid, however, becomes enamored of Psyche, and arranges for her to be taken to his palace. He visits her by night, warning her not to try to look upon him. Psyche's sisters, though, become envious of her love affair with Cupid, and so they convince her that her lover must be a hideous monster, since he won't let her look upon him. And so one night, Psyche introduces a lamp into her chamber in order to see him. Startled by his beauty, she drips hot oil from the lamp and awakens him. Realizing that she had disobeyed him, Cupid runs off and abandons her. A saddened Psyche wanders the earth looking for him, and finally submits to the service of Venus, who tortures her. The goddess then sends Psyche on a series of quests, each time she despairs, and each time she is given divine aid. On her final task, she is ordered to retrieve a dose of Proserpina's beauty from the underworld. She succeeds, but on the way back can't resist opening the box in the hope of benefiting from it herself, whereupon she falls into a paralyzing sleep. Cupid finds her in this state and revives her by returning the sleep to the box. Cupid then grants her immortality so that the couple can be wed as equals, often presented as an allegory of love overcoming death. The story was a frequent source of imagery for Roman and Renaissance artists. Another ancient principle appears in the myth of Adonis, a handsome mortal man born through extraordinary events and who Aphrodite fell in love with. Adonis' birth has many variants, but the most widely accepted version is recounted by Ovid in his Metamorphoses. The tradition holds that either a certain king of Cyprus, named Kinras, or a king of Phoenicia, named Theus had a daughter named Mira, who was very beautiful. Because Mira's mother boasted that she was more beautiful than Aphrodite herself, the goddess took revenge by stirring up an incestuous love within the girl for her father. With the help of her nurse, Mira managed to deceive her father, who had a mistress that he visited almost every night anyways. But instead of visiting his mistress, now Kinross visited his daughter in bed. She held such an insatiable lust for her own father, so that on 12 successive nights he made love to her. Apparently, Kinross liked to operate in the dark and didn't realize who it was that he was having sex with. Anyways, on the last night, Kinross finally discovered the trick and was so filled with anger and hate that he began to pursue his own daughter with a knife in order to kill her. The gods took pity on Mira, though, and transformed her into a mere tree. Nine months after the transformation, the bark of the tree split open and outplopped a marvelous baby who received the name Adonis. When Aphrodite glanced upon the child, she immediately took pity on him and came to love him, and so she secretly hid him in a chest, and put him under the care and safekeeping of Persephone, the queen of the underworld. But Persephone likewise was enchanted by the child too, so that when he grew into a handsome young man, she did not want to give him back. And so Aphrodite and Persephone wrangled over the child as if the two were vying for a lover's affection. The dispute between the two goddesses was eventually settled by Zeus who decided that Adonis was to spend one-third of every year with each goddess, and the last third by himself. Adonis, though, during his time on Earth, began to really enjoy hunting, and so Aphrodite warned him against pursuing big game, fearing that something bad would happen to him. But Adonis ignored her advice. One day, though, When he was out on his rite of passage boar hunt, he was stabbed by a boar's tusk in the groin and bled to death in Aphrodite's arms. From his blood sprouted the dark red anemone flower, which takes its name from the wind, which so easily makes its petals fall. Furthermore, the ancients believed that it was because of the blood of Adonis that the Adonis River in modern Lebanon turns to red each spring. Some sources state that the boar was sent by Artemis, either because she was jealous of his hunting skills, or in retaliation for Aphrodite, instigating the death of Hippolytus, who was a favorite of hers. Other sources state that it was sent by Ares, who was jealous of Aphrodite's love for Adonis. Regardless, the significance in the myth is that Adonis goes down to the underworld, making Persephone happy, and she has him as her plaything, but he also returns to Earth to Aphrodite and so the mortal man dies and comes back to life, representing a dying god of the vegetation routine. When Adonis is with Aphrodite, the earth is fertile, but when he is with Persephone in the underworld, the earth is bare. The ancients noticed that nature works in this way. Things grow, they spread large, and then they die and are buried. Similarly, the male phallus gets big, spreads its seed, and then dies, only to repeat the process and so the fertility force is constant, and there is a life cycle around it. This particular story is one of many myths where the fertility goddess has a male god who dies and returns over and over with the seasons. The story links Aphrodite with many of the other female goddesses as a divinity representing fertility, and in particular, the principle that life and death work in a kind of cyclical tandem, each dependent upon the other. Life is not a race to the finish line, but a continuous and never-ending cycle of life, death, and rebirth, best seen in the life cycle of plants. As a protectress of the life cycle, Aphrodite was given the epithet genetilis, or genetrix, as well as anthea, since through love and lust she acted as a generative force, and this attribute of hers had an effect on the fruits of the earth the flowers, the plants, and all the living creatures, and Adonis became the symbol of nature's bloom and withering. His name is often applied in modern times to handsome youths, of whom he is the archetype. He held a special appeal for Greek women, combining the erotic adoration of a beautiful youth with the emotional catharsis of lamentation for his death. The earliest reference to Adonis being worshipped in Greece comes from a fragment of one of Sappho's poems dating to the 7th century BC, in which a chorus of young girls ask Aphrodite what they should do to mourn Adonis's death. Aphrodite replies that in order to celebrate the beautiful Adonis as a dying god of vegetation, the women should perform what would become known as the Adonia, meaning that they tore their tunics and struck their breasts, a standard sign of mourning, and wandered about lamenting the death of the dying god of vegetation. Other features of Adonis' ritual belong to the cult in classical Athens, in which the Adonia became an annual festival. A few days before the Adonia, in midsummer, garden herbs and grains were sown in broken pots. These tender young plants were brought to the rooftops during the festival, and warm water was added to make the seeds develop quicker than usual. Thanks to this method, soon after, the seeds sprouted in late summer, but they would wither in the hot sun and die before they reached maturation, as emblems of the youthful Adonis' death. As the plants withered, the women bewailed the gods' passing. In Hellenistic Alexandria, a magnificent pageant imitating the wedding of Aphrodite and Adonis was followed on the next day by a ritual in which a statue of the god was carried down to the shore where it was cast into the sea amidst loud lamentation by the city's women. Adonis was worshipped in unspoken mystery religions throughout the classical and Hellenistic periods, and it wasn't until the Roman period, as seen in the works of Lucian of Samosata, that the saddened women were consoled by a revived Adonis. Similar to Adonis is the Phrygian Attis, who was the consort of Sibylle. Although Adonis and Attis both came from different cultures, they are the same name etymologically. In the Old Testament, the Hebrews were told not to worship Asherah, a mother goddess whose consort was Adonai, or Lord, and so it's believed that the legend of Adonis derived from ancient Canaanite religion. Adonis can also be attested in other Near Eastern cultures with Egyptian Osiris, Babylonian Tammuz, and Assyrian Baal, all of whom are deities of rebirth and vegetation. But where is these deities enjoyed near universal recognition and worship in the Near East? The worship of Adonis rarely gained the status of a state-sponsored cult amongst the Greeks. It is unlikely that his festival was seen as having any link with the stages of the agricultural year, because the plants with which he was associated were essentially barren and ephemeral. Furthermore, Adonis was viewed with some ambivalence by the male population, probably because his main adherents were women, and in spite of his popularity in certain areas, his cult retained a fundamentally foreign aura, at the core of his cult, lay a ritual with no connection to acknowledge sacred space. In Greek context, before the Hellenistic period, Adonis only rarely possessed a sanctuary, temple, or even an altar, making his rites anomalous. The sexual element in the myth, though, should not be overlooked either. The young lover dies prematurely as a consequence of his relationship with a powerful female. The wound inflicted by the boar can perhaps be seen, because of its location near the groin, as the equivalent of castration. This may be once again thought of as expressing the male fear of women's sexuality. The Adonia Festival, with its uninhibited exhibitions of grief and despair, clearly provided the women involved with a tremendous emotional outlet, but the association which the right established between unrestrained sexuality and the failure of fertility perhaps spoke to them of society's needs to contain women's passions within the male-dominated institution of marriage. We've already talked about Aphrodite's children with Ares. So let's turn to some of her illustrious children with some of the other gods and mortals. With Hermes, she produced the aforementioned Pytho, as well as Hermaphroditus, both of whom we discussed in episode 67. Some legends say that Aphrodite also had an affair with Dionysus, and that that union then produced Priapus. He was a minor rustic fertility god in Greek myth, but became a very popular figure in Roman erotic art and literature. Not only does he have an enormous sexual appetite, as one might expect being the love child of two highly sexual divinities, but he also has an enormous phallus. According to legend, while he was still in Aphrodite's womb, in revenge for Paris having the temerity to judge Aphrodite more beautiful than Hera, she cursed Priapus with having an almost permanently engorged penis, but with inconvenient impotence as he could not sustain his erection when the time came for sexual intercourse. The other gods, though, refused to allow him to live on Mount Olympus, and so they threw him down to the earth, where he was found along a hillside by shepherds and was raised by them. And so Priapus joined Pan and the satyrs as a rustic protector god who symbolized the male erection and fertility, though he was perennially frustrated by his own impotence. Priapus was originally worshipped in Lampsacus on the eastern coast of the Hellespont, but his cult spread to mainland Greece and eventually to Italy during the 3rd century BC. He played a more important role in the countryside, where he was seen as a guardian deity. His protection traits can be traced back to the importance placed on the phallus in ancient times. The phallus is powerful, full of energy, life-giving, and terrorizes evil influences. And so it was an apotropaic symbol, which means that it could turn away evil spirits. His image was placed in gardens and houses to ward off anything that could damage the growth of the plants, and often contained phallic symbols of some sort, like candle holders and wind chimes with phallic wings, many of which can be seen in the secret erotic art room in the Naples Archaeological Museum. Like with the Herms, the phallus was also associated with territorial demarcation, attributing to Priapus's other role as a navigational deity. In fact, Priapus' role as a patron god for merchant sailors in ancient Greece and Rome is that of a protector and navigational aid. Recent shipwreck evidence contains apotropaic items carried on board by mariners in the forms of a terracotta phallus, a wooden Priapus figure, and a bronze sheath from a military ram coinciding with the use of wooden priapic markers erected in areas of dangerous passage or particular landing areas for sailors. The function of Priapus has shown to be much more extensive than previously thought. Statues of Priapus were often hung with signs bearing epigrams that threatened sexual assault towards transgressors of the boundaries that he protected. Some ancients even wore an image of Priapus, meaning a large phallus, around their neck in order to ward off the evil eye, which is the glare of any ill-wishers similar to the Christian use of the cross. To propitiate Priapus, the traveler would stroke the statue's penis as he passed by, symbolizing good luck. Furthermore, because of his role in luck and safe passages and boundaries, the Athenians often conflated Priapus with Hermes, and oftentimes depicted a hybrid-shaped deity with a winged helmet, sandals, and a huge erection. A number of Roman paintings of Priapus have survived, One of the most famous images is found in a villa at Pompeii, showing him weighing his enormous phallus against a large bag of coins. This is related to the story that a donkey once boasted and challenged Priapus to a contest to see whose phallus was bigger. When they both weighed theirs, the donkey's was shown to be larger. An insulted Priapus thus killed the animal and demanded that a donkey should henceforth be sacrificed to him. Yet there is another story by Ovid that explains this preference. While at a party on earth, thrown by a Dionysus, everyone was drinking and dancing, and Priapus approached the virgin goddess Hestia, but she refused his sexual advances, so he decided not to drink any anymore and waited until everyone else passed out drunk. He then tried to have his way with her, but the donkey of the nymph Selenus neighed and woke her up before he could penetrate her. Startled, Hestia then ran off, and an enraged Priapus thus killed the donkey, and he demanded that donkeys be henceforth sacrificed to him. Regardless, Priapus was a divinity worshipped throughout the ancient world by carrying around decked-out donkeys for sacrifice amongst a carnival atmosphere. Priapus does not appear to have had an organized cult, though, and was mostly worshipped privately in gardens or homes, though some authors mention temples dedicated to the god. His sacrificial animal was the donkey, as we mentioned, but agricultural offerings, such as fruit, flowers, vegetables, and fish, were also very common. Aphrodite also consummated a relationship with a Trojan shepherd named Anchises. As we mentioned, not even Zeus himself could escape the powers of Aphrodite, and she especially liked to stir up trouble with his love affairs. At one point, Zeus finally decided to get revenge by filling her heart with love for a mortal man named Anchises, who was a Trojan shepherd that herded his cattle around Mount Ida, and who was so beautiful that he had the looks of a god. The Homeric hymn to Aphrodite tells of this union. When Aphrodite spied him, she burned so fierce with a desire, which she so often inflamed in others, and she flew immediately to her temples to adorn her body with all kinds of perfumes and jewelry. Then she appeared on Mount Ida with a retinue of enchanted beasts. And along with her, fawning, dashed gray wolves and lions with gleaming eyes, and bears, and swift leopards, ever hungry for deer. And when she saw them, she was delighted in her heart and placed longing in theirs, so that they lay together in pairs along the shady glens." In this scene, Aphrodite is pictured as a powerful nature goddess, a mistress of animals who, rather than tending young creatures as Artemis does, ensures that the coupling takes place which will bring them into being. Then she gave into her own desires and appeared to Anchises, radiating with lust and sexuality herself. Perhaps the affair between the goddess of love and a human male is supposed to symbolize the utter weakness of a male during the very apex of passion with a woman. Certainly Anchises was overcome at the sight of this ultimate woman's beauty and had to submit himself to these carnal demands. She made it with Anchises and the result was Aeneas, a hero of the Trojan War who escaped to Italy with some adventures in Carthage along the way and eventually founded the Roman race. And it was his descendants who founded the city of Rome. And so that's Aphrodite. On the next episode, we will discuss the various aspects of ancient Greek life in which the goddess of seduction had control over. So join me next time on the history of ancient Greece, episode 71 Love, Sex, and Prostitution. <music>